Right, we are live. Welcome back to the Elite Coaching Podcast. It's been a, it's been a while since we've done one of these, probably five or six months, but back today with a bang with my good friend, Dara. Dara, how are you, buddy? Yeah, man, well, good. Um, just working my way through prep at the moment, and it's been going pretty smooth. Yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a very exciting uh, journey watching your, your prep uh, thus far. Do, do you want to give everyone just a little bit of an introduction into, into yourself, like what you do into your coaching business, and then we'll touch a little bit more into your actual, your prep and your journey so far to that. Yeah, cool. So um, my name is Dara Allen. I am an online coach. I always feel feel like really odd referring to myself as a bodybuilder. Um, you are, you're a Well, I, I suppose at this stage now, I can kind of, I can wear that hat. Um, but I suppose like first and foremost, I do kind of put myself as a coach. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much been how it's been over the last few years, just developing my own knowledge like geeking out as much as possible but like it always comes back to like how much of that you can apply to the individual in front of you and helping people progress and that's it it's been going well um so yeah currently on prep at eight weeks out now um competed four five years ago um and i was on prep two years ago when shows got cancelled from covid so um hopefully we get to the stage this time Praise God. The, the, the one question that, that I wanted to ask, I've, I've been watching obviously like your journey over the last couple of years and watched your, your journey in 2020 with Cal and watching this journey. And one thing that kind of resonated with me was that, that the timing of this prep. And I wanted to kind of ask you about that and get you to kind of speak about that. How, because what it looks like for myself is like, this is like perfect timing for you. It's like everything is set up so well, like the training environment, everything has just such a nice groove to it. What was that pinnacle like pin drop moment for you to be like, right, this is my time to go now? Well, like, obviously, you're going to have a lot of people who do enjoy just wanting to get out there and getting like, get, get, getting the experience of going out and competing. Um, and we can't really disregard that. But also, it is bodybuilding like it's not a dieting competition and i think you have to have set enough kind of groundwork and laid the foundations to actually go ahead and diet because i think a lot of people will shortchange themselves and and become very disheartened when they realize because like at the end of the day there's going to be a lot less muscle there and more fat than what anyone thinks like no matter how realistic you are that's pretty much the expectation you want to put on yourself is that like right there's probably more to come off and i'm not as big as i think so when to actually go ahead with the prep is like once you feel comfortable and confident and like you've got that validation from people who actually know their stuff because you'll get a lot of people like in your local gym people in social media saying oh bro you look massive all this and that but unless you actually know someone who's been there and done it and you can take their word as valuable and you get their approval that like yeah cool go ahead prep looks like a good idea then would be kind of like the, the time to go for it yeah what was it was it in, environmental for you as well because obviously like you're you're living in a, in a in a country now where like your surroundings are very influential towards what you're about to do did that play a pretty big role in it as well well i nearly say the other way around it was like that's why we moved here because like the culture is is just much more significant um so obviously yeah, i'm from dublin like yourself and not to like disregard the irish community but like it's it's just miles miles ahead over here um and like, even with my last prep in 2020, the environment thing was such a, a critical component because before that I was actually working with Aer Lingus and then I moved to a gym again to like intentionally put myself into a better environment to to go ahead and do something that you enjoy. So yeah, that, that's incredible. And like I said, watching from the outside in, 
that was one of the big things that I found. Like when I saw you start off your prep and as the weeks went by, in my mind, like watching that, like from the outside, I'm like, you just, you, you seem to have nailed it perfectly. It's like everything, like from a physique standpoint, from your environment, your training, where you are, it just seemed to have fit so well. So that's why when I was getting into the podcast, like that's the first thing I want to ask him. It's like, did you like intentionally do it? Or was there just like that pin drop moment where you're like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go. Yeah, well, it does have to be like somewhat of a, a ballsy move to like put yourself first. And I don't think it, it's not a, it's not an arrogance thing. And look, you'll always have people who say like, it's pretty shallow to like just be thinking about bodybuilding or whatever. But like, if it is what you enjoy, you should never really feel guilty about putting yourself first and having the confidence to say like no to something that is like comfortable. Like not all, not all of your growth is going to come from a, a comfortable environment. So it's hands down the most selfish sports there is. Like you, you won't find another sport if you have to become this immersive and taking yourself into that situation of moving away to different environments. I think it's only gonna it's only gonna showcase when you actually do get up there. Like I think, like I said, it would just seem like the, the perfect time. So you know, I'm I'm looking forward to it. And um, right, so what we're gonna cover on today's on today's podcast, as as Dara touched on earlier on, like Dara's education is definitely something that like I look up to quite a lot and respect a hell of a lot. Um, and I wanted Dara to touch on on this topic today. So we're going we're going to talk about kind of volume considerations for maximizing um, results more specific towards female clients. As I'd probably say about eighty five percent of the listeners are going to be females who who tune into this. A lot of them will be clients of mine, followers, etc. So what I want to kind of touch on first is this concept of kind of MRV, like it's maximum recoverable volume. So when you're programming for your own clients, Dara, what would be like the assessment towards their threshold to how much volume can we push with them? So I want to actually start this by throwing a bit of a spanner in the works there. And like, there's going to be this caveat towards volume of like potential limitations that we have when we're extrapolating information from research um, and how we're actually practically applying that because there's going to be some level of bottlenecks there that's going to, again, like, minimize the, the application that we can have between the two. So when we're looking at like volume per se, we have to re- appreciate that like not all research is going to be done very accurately. You'll have people, you'll have some research that says like, oh, I'm trained individuals, but what constitutes a trained individual? Okay, so you're going to have someone that will be like ex-marathon runners or it could be like Navy SEALs. Like they're very different modalities of training, but they're both trained individuals. Then when it comes to the actual specifics of executing the movement, you're going to have like equipment availability being a potential bottleneck. You'll have the setup of the actual movement, like your accuracy um, relative to your proportions as an individual, your lever lengths, um, and like any other issues you have with potential like activation of a muscle group. You might have like other muscle groups that are overactive and they're kind of compensating or you're not getting much engagement with the, the tissue you're trying to train. So that's, I suppose, straight out the gate. Anything else that we say herein is, it's encapsulated within that we need to kind of appreciate those preceding terms before we actually say like, right, okay, more sets, less sets, how much for body part, all that. So yeah, so moving into maximum recoverable volume, this is pretty plain and simple, like how much volume you can do and still recover from. That's going to be relative to, probably know as allostasis, allostatic load, basically how much stressors are in your environment, in your day-to-day life. Um, 
So our goal as coaches is pretty much to minimize that allostasis, minimize that life stress so that you can maximize your training stress because there's going to be like an inverse relationship between the two. So if you're highly stressed, you're having poor sleep, nutrient uh, partitioning is poor due to digestive issues, that's going to take away from how much volume you can actually train with. So again, a lot of people will say this fatigue management stuff is irrelevant or overhyped, but it's it's about the context of who you apply it to. Um, so I think once we're ticking those boxes and we have we have our training standardized, we have our allostasis or our normal stressors managed, then when it moves to like your maximal recoverable volume, initially it's kind of like a, a, just trial and error. Um, so what we typically do is like move your training volume up over the course of a few weeks. Um, again, maintaining all of those other things well in the background. And once you get to that top end point where let's say like markers such as pump or contraction in the gym starts to diminish, your appetite starts to take a bit of a hit, um, sleep takes a bit of a hit. When, once you see this skew in biomarkers and once that skew is coming from training related fatigue alone, that would be a pretty good indication of like, right, that's kind of your threshold. Yeah. I love that what you said there at the start about like having to like assess lifestyle first and then we like look at training. When you have a client who initially comes in, would that be like your first protocol with them? It's like, I'll assess everything in the background first. And would you start off training at like a complete bare baseline? Would that be your first protocol? Similar to that. Yeah. So like, obviously when you take a client on board, there is a level of expectations that, you need to voice across with someone. You need to have that clear client agreement and say, like, right, this is what's kind of expected from you, but it's not all at once. Like, you're not going to have someone who comes in from having, like, three takeaways a week, blah, 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 poor field, never trains, and you're saying, right, go buy a pair of blue light blocking glasses, go do some sunlight exposure, all this stuff. You're going to drip feed that over the course of a few weeks. And I wouldn't say start training at a bare minimum because you're also going to have, like, their ability to train hard. If there's someone who hasn't really trained and they can't train hard, then doing very little and not training hard is not going to get you anywhere. So yeah, if it is a trained individual, I would start them off on the lower end, definitely. Yeah, perfect. And just just to, kind of to, to, to I suppose, ask another question inside that, when you're looking at their their whole lifestyle, and I was kind of taking about some volume, but it's a good question to ask what would be like the factors of lifestyle that you would be looking at initially like would you be looking at like work stressors family stressors are there certain things that your questions that you would ask maybe your console form or check-ins that would kind of pull that information from them so you can start to immediately that towards the volume yeah um so it, it pretty much should all be encapsulated within your like initial consultation or or your data collection form so actually having a good understanding of like their job and if it is somewhat vague then like ask them like right what do you do within your job and like maybe go a few days of tracking like their step count before you set them up because someone could say like oh i have a have a pretty easy job in hospitality and then it turns out they're doing like twenty thousand steps a day they're fucking changing bed sheets all this stuff and like that's going to meet their requirements for exercise okay um so yeah and again, jumping on calls with people, having some interaction, getting a good understanding of that uh, is going to be pretty useful, I think. Yeah, that's awesome, buddy. That's that's good. I, I like the way we, we touched on that. Because um, again, I think for this all, like MRV thing, it, it's for our listeners. It's going to be good to hear like the actual breakdown of that and like what we should be like looking to assess from there. So after we've kind of assessed that like baseline point, 
then moving into more more kind of specification. So when you're looking at like a, a female, when we're looking at like the, the body parts that we're going to look to try to bring up, whether it's just for like maybe like a photo shoot or stepping on stage, maybe like entering into like a bikini comp, what would be the like specification that you would put into the program for them from a, a volume standpoint? Like what would be like the, the kind of starting point and where would we kind of titrate that to? Uh, in terms of sets or like where? Just I'm talking to kind of the total overall overall volume for like a muscle group. So would you like maybe emphasize more volume towards the glutes, the quads? Would it be oh, split yeah. like more lower, less upper? What would be your, your programming approach? Yeah, with females, like they'll, they'll typically prefer to enjoy uh, lower body training as well. And that's probably another thing I should have mentioned. But like the caveat at the start with training is like movements that you enjoy it's like we might touch on exercise selection um but like movements that you enjoy and body parts that you enjoy training you're going to train with more intensity you're going to take to a closer proximity to failure that's like again that's another bottleneck that we're going to have when looking at the amount of sets is like how close that is to actual failure and again if it's a movement that you don't enjoy you're not going to take it like far enough anyway so yeah that's definitely a, a pretty important consideration um with regards specificity with training yeah lower body is typically the preference with females um but again you could have some that are just completely lower body dominant so we wouldn't take like a a, bl- a blueprint and apply it to all females like you'll do a needs analysis of each female and once you get the physique pictures in you kind of see what the goal is if they're going to be in wellness you're going to say right we're doing legs three four times a week like that's that's that um bikini you can add in a little bit more kind of delt work some lats whatever um figure probably a little bit more muscularity less body fat um but yeah it's always gonna be like a needs analysis for the for the individual fund and i want to i want to kind of ask now about like if you weren't were to bring up a, a body part right so let's say we had a client who we wanted to bring up her glutes what would like your like initial like programming thought process be towards that like would you let's say i'll give them glutes let's say maybe four sessions a week but then inside of that session how much volume how many like let's say exercises sets would you prescribe to that individual to try to really push that growth i would say subsequent to like some training feedback some visual feedback with training some subjective feedback and a few like conversations with the people in front of you is like first of all see how hard they're training and how much recovery they need per session um, because if someone's going to absolutely bury themselves and they're like very efficient at directing most of that volume towards that target tissue group, the, the recovery time is going to be vastly different. Like if someone's just kind of going in and like getting a pump like every every few days, like it's not going to take away from their subsequent session, and particularly with like smaller body parts, where it'd be like, um, like. If we take a hack squat, it's going to be completely different in terms of like the amount of fatigue generated than a leg extension. They're both going to be biased in quads. Um, so when it comes to like the amount of sets that we do, James Krieger has a lot of research done on this. Um, if anyone wants to look him up, he has the, the volume Bible written out, um, which again extrapolates a lot from the current research available. Um, but realistically, like you could move that up towards like 22, 26 maybe even 30 sets per week per body part. Now, when it comes to that end of specialization, something's got to give. So we can't just start off with a current training block of, okay, we're doing eight sets of quads, 
Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 24 sets. Cool. If we start that out in like five sets, we move all those up. That could bring us to that point of overreaching where we see those negative outcomes. So potentially what you'd have to do is kind of like titrate other things down or maybe even move your exercise selection to something less fatiguing. So as I said, it could be eight sets. Like Joe has done this to me previously, put me on eight sets of hack squat. Like you're going to get a shit ton of fatigue. Yeah. It's not a nice thing to go through. So over the course of a few weeks, you might actually switch some of those for a leg extension. Okay. Over those few weeks, we might actually bring down the amount of rows I'm doing per week. Um, and again, we can't just say, okay, my, my total sets are 60 sets per week. That's all I can do. So if I add two sets of hacks, I need to take away two sets of triceps because it's a completely different amount of fatigue you've generated. So um, yeah, they're kind of like the uh, the caveats and I suppose a bit of a segue into like the stimulus versus fatigue. So as I was alluding to, like the fatigue you generate from a movement is predicated on the amount of like internal stability required. So if you have something that's like, a free weight and you're going to have a lot more muscle groups especially the compound movements you're going to have a lot more muscle groups uh, assisting that movement so using rts terms you're going to have like joint managers and so on um that they will they will generate fatigue so yeah like you just need to take that into consideration not say like okay like not, not all sets are going to be like for like there's going to be a level of um potential what's the term yeah um don't know how to rephrase that <laughs> there's going to be a level of uh compromise yeah so i just want to ask one question about and tip me tongue there, there when when you touch back there you said when let's say we're going to push one thing up we'd have to pull one thing down would you always like let's say we're trying to really push for like maximizing growth here and let's just talk about the hack squad there would you always favor, okay, I'll, I will push that hack squat up one and maybe like scale everything else back? Or would you more, okay, maybe I can push the hack squat, keep the hack squat where it is and push everything else? Because as you said, as you said, you know, the, the fatigue on the hack squat is going to be like a lot greater. If you're trying to maximize growth, would you say, okay, let me kind of take the risk of pushing the hack up by one more and we'll just assess, assess and kind of keep everything else low? Or would you maybe keep the hack where it is and maybe go, okay, risk assessment is not worth it at this point and I'll push everything else up. Yeah, so, like, when you're making those adjustments, I would kind of do so. You can, like, you can manage this stuff and you can see on a day-by-day. It's not as if one day you're fine and the, the next day you've completely overtrained. You're, like, seeing three kilos of muscle mass loss. Like, that's not going to be the case. It's going to be a transition from, like, okay, I'm starting to feel more fatigued. Days are going to be... Sorry, sleep is going to start to take a bit of a detriment. Okay, what do I do now? I can proact, or I suppose at this stage it's reactively. I can put in like a little deload. We can take the next two days off to scale that back, reassess and readjust from there. So if you notice that like, okay, I've added on a set of hack squats and uh, kept everything else the same. And after three days, my appetite started to take a hit. Right, take the next two days off then pull everything else back slowly and then continue with your hack squat progression. Or as I said, like we could switch that hack squat for another set of leg extensions. This is, again, in the context of like biasing quad development for, for a female athlete. Okay, perfect. Really good. Um, would you mind just touching on very, very briefly this whole kind of aspect of stimulus versus fatigue? Like in, in your mind, what is like, 
op- op- optimal stimulus and then when we look at more from the fatigue like what are like the markers that you're going to assess to say okay are we pushing the boat too far to the right or are we are we happy keeping it over here onto the left um so in terms of stimulus to fatigue it's it's i suppose the efficiency of uh, volume that you're directing towards a particular muscle group relative to the fatigue it's generating at the other or supporting joints so an example we could do is let's say a barbell row we're going to create some level of stimulus to our lats rhomboids traps again we're not going to isolate any of those muscle groups we're going to have a bias towards them based on setup but also with that we're having potential fatigue for joint managers potentially at the elbow joint around the shoulder around the pelvis because you have to stabilize that position you could do a pretty similar movement get similar activation patterns and get similar um volume from a chest supported t-barrow and with that you have less stabilization requirements so what I would say is like if if joints start to feel a little bit more needy or if you're feeling more fatigue in a um at a joint that isn't really the, the main joint that you're trying to train around, that would be an indication of okay, let's switch up for something uh elsewhere. Now that's not saying okay, let's just go proactively and just stick with machines because there is a lot of value in sticking with compound movements and like the stabilization requirements does actually play into your overall volume. Obviously, like you can't calculate it, or it probably doesn't make sense to do so. But like when you again sticking with that example of a barbell row, if you are going to track your volume, you're probably not going to track that as like bicep volume, yeah. but your biceps are still active. So again, when it comes to the efficiency of like how much total body progression and hypertrophic stimulus you can incur from a particular movement. Yes, it makes sense to go with your compound free weight movements. Okay, perfect. Really interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, right. Well, I want to ask about about volume adjustments for for clients and where where do you like to initially bring up bring up volume? So let's say we like you spoke earlier on, we brought the client in. We're assessing kind of where they can train. We're assessing their markers. We've gotten them to a point where we know they can train quite hard. What would be the initial like increment for, for you? Like where would you like to push volume first? So if we're going to have a bias toward a particular muscle group, then obviously it would be that when it comes to the exercise selection. Sometimes I'd, I'd nearly give clients a free, free reign with that. And I'd say, where do you want to move them up? Obviously, it comes down to their level of experience um, their intuition with training and so on, because like you will have some clients and it'll be very easy to tell. Like you probably know right now which of your clients, if you gave them free reign, would overreach or you know which ones would undertrain. So the ones who would undertrain based off of the regulation, you're going to say, no, I'm taking the rinse. Um. I'm probably the same up, up the other end. But I suppose when it comes to exercise selection, their enjoyment is going to be, as we've mentioned, a, a pretty determining factor. So something that they enjoy that they're going to be able to take to a relative proximity to failure is probably going to be your first choice there. And then going back to the stimulus of fatigue, it's kind of when or if that does create excessive fatigue that we kind of switch it for something else. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, I, I, I like the way you, you kind of touched on that, like proximity to failure. So for, for you, it would be more assessing you know, what's what's safe for them. What do I know? 
that I can almost guarantee they're going to push that marker point to fail. Like, let's say if it's like a middle of the ground um, experience level, me giving them like additional back, so- back squat sets is probably not going to give them what they require. I can just put them into a leg extension. They're going to, it would be very like client dependent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a pretty good example there as well, because obviously this is going to be pretty much encapsulated in the programming or the periodization of the training itself. But if it is a movement that does require a high level of internal stability, then it probably doesn't make sense to push that with high volume if you're also taking it to a relative proximity to failure. So, yeah, using the back squat example, you're not going to put someone in five sets of back squat if it's at the end of their session and if they're not good at back squat and you're not going to take those to failure. If they're taking that to failure, like it's going to be early in the session, it's going to be low volume. Um, because after that, like the quality takes away from the quantity of the work done. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. And yeah, it wouldn't be a nice leg session to go through anyway if we can't put so much out there. Oh, um, funny story, actually. Um, you know James, James Sutton, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if you heard it on a Muslim Mentors podcast, but I remember him saying about um, doing a training camp with Milos Sarchev. And he had him, you know, the way Milos does like these crazy joint sets. Yeah. And he had him on, I think it was a joint set of pendulum squat, walking lunges, leg extension, back squat, like in that order, <laughs> all to failure. And it's just, uh, it just sounds horrific. I, 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 I have to, like, someone take my hat off people like that because if somehow he makes it work and like, it's yeah. like a textbook, that should not work, but yeah. somehow they managed to make it work. Yeah, and that's probably another point I should have said at the start when we're caveating all of this that we mentioned when it comes to volume, like everything works at some rate or another and for one individual or another. You don't need to understand all of this in perfect detail and like be able to rattle this off the tip of your tongue to get results. You're going to have people who've been training years, they, they train like dog shit, but they're growing, they're making progress. What we do here in terms of looking at how we do movements, how we program training, is just trying to speed up that process, get you from A to B in the most time efficient manner possible, or A to Z. So yeah, not everything here, it might be overwhelming to some people, and just pick and choose what you need from it, and like whenever it seems applicable to you as an individual or for you with your coach to kind of look through this stuff but at the end of the day like everything will work out at yeah. some point just one thing when you you were speaking earlier on the diary and um, we just made an offer here to ask when, when you were talking about like assessing your client's proximity to failure this is probably something that definitely needs to be spoken about more as we, we're starting to deal with more clients who are at a higher experience level or kind of climbing that ladder amongst their experience is this whole kind of concept of, of failure? When you're assessing your clients, is it video feedback you you get back from them that you request? Is you, you as, as frequently as possible, yeah. Okay. Um, it's not just in the sense of like your proximity to failure, but another thing that I was really happy to hear like AJ Morris talk about in that podcast with Luke Miller. Yeah, that's, that's good. Your your attention, your focus, like pre post set, and also doubling back to like going back to talking about like my environment like being here and seeing what other people do before their sets like you don't have people like just going straight into the set and like just smashing up there's a level of like visualization focus uh collectiveness that you need to kind of take things there and 
that's something that like you you pick up on maybe subconsciously maybe consciously but when you see other people doing it you're like okay maybe that has a purpose yeah it's that whole thing of we don't know what we don't know and not being in those environments you're never going to be able to expose yourself and like you said earlier on like it probably was a selfless thing for me to do but in five years time that selfless act is probably going to be the best thing you've ever done as well as taking yourself and putting yourself in that environment so when you when you get the the feedback off off the client and you assess them how how hard because obviously you you can train to to fader and you understand that 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 level that's required how hard are you on that feedback like are you are you telling them like look you're probably four or five off there like what are you like more gentle with your approach at the feedback or what's your take there yeah relative again it's always going to be relative to who it is so if it is someone who's like they made some progress there. And especially if there's someone who's getting frustrated with their current lack of progress, I think then you can like say without hesitation, like, look, this is this is why, like you're training like a bit of a pussy. So you're not going to say that to people straight out the gate. Like there is a, a skill acquisition component to train them. You have to get proficient at a movement that comes through the, the competence of actually doing stuff on a repeated basis. And then once that is the case, then you can kind of say, right, now we we're looking to uh, to take things out a little bit further. What we're looking for, and um, we're kind of like cut off points. What we w- would say for a hard set or something again close to failure is an involuntary reduction in contraction speed. So the rep is slowing down by accident. You're not saying, "Okay, this is my last rep. I better fucking slow this down." No, like you from rep one, like you're still trying to press that weight. Let's say for a fucking hard squat or whatever you're still trying to press that as quick as you can, but you've generated so much local fatigue that you're not able to move it quick. If that first rep looks similar to the last rep in terms of speed, you you weren't on your last rep. It's as simple as that. Um, so rep speed is one. Um, another, this can be kind of controversial among some camps, some camps, but... Um, your joint positions and how you're set up and any kind of leeway that you have in how you perform the movement. I don't want to say they have to be identical in terms of like your setup. You're going to have some level of compensation, okay? But if you see someone who's like really driving their hips up off the fucking, off the back of the hack squat or whatever movement you want to do, or if we see something changing drastically, you're saying, right, okay, stop that volume wasn't going where we wanted it to. You were letting other muscles take over that movement because the ones you're trying to train have generated enough fatigue and they can no longer perform that movement. So again, just appreciate there has to be a level of leeway there, especially if it's with the trained individual who's taken things that a little bit closer to failure. And again, that's going to be controversial among some people. Yeah, no, and a, and a phenomenal I think to speak about as well is, and I think we touched from that AJ podcast as well, is that like level of execution. It's like, do we just abide by textbook or do we let the textbook slide a little bit in that kind of chase for, for progression? Do you have like that leeway marker with people where you'll say, okay, look, I expect it to be like hundred percent on like, let's say rep one to four, but as we kind of creep in a little bit more, like I'm going to give you that little bit more leeway if you can still get that weight from A to B. Yeah, because as we said, if the first and last rep looked the exact same, it wasn't your last rep. So it's it's a uh, yeah, it's pretty simple in terms of that sense. Yeah, that's that's brilliant, and that definitely leads on to our next point is is touching on kind of as as we've been like speaking to this kind of volume and pyramid, like getting to that like upper end. Then obviously we're going to have to hit a point of like diminishing return where things have to either 
stall or will have to push things towards a bit more of a deload. To you, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on maybe marker points first. And like when you're assessing your clients, what are you looking for? What would be like your, your telltale sign that someone like needs to deload? Appetite is usually the first to go. Um, sleep deterioration, but again, like it comes back to that anesthesia. So like someone's like if, if I see feedback or like someone's tracking their sleep and it's four out of seven, I'm going to say, right, have you still been doing what we what we plan to do? You know what I mean? Is that is that coming from training related fatigue or is that you mismanaging your general day to day stress? Um, but yeah, once we kind of see those decrease, uh, pump is, is another one that I like to track. So again, like how much connection do you feel within that given tissue? Because um, that will typically diminish as well. Um, uh, but also like, I wouldn't say, oh, I didn't get a pump today. I need to deload. Like how was your electrolyte intake relative to your fluid intake? Like when were you, when did you last eaten? And Another thing that we should probably talk. Another thing that we should probably talk about is like your volume threshold in a given phase. So your hypocaloric MRV, your maximum recoverable volume when you're in a calorie deficit, is going to be less than what you can do when you're in a surplus. This is going to be further exacerbated or emphasized with someone using anabolics because obviously greater training capacity, better recovery capacity. But once you're in a dieting phase, you don't have that nutrient availability. That's going to take away from how much you can do. And it's not to say, okay, I'm on a diet now. First week into the diet, I need to pull my training 20% down. It's not the case. But maybe at the latter end of photo shoot prep, we're starting to work things down. And that's probably something that we'll, like, we'll see in a gaining phase, in an improvement phase, we're titrating training up. We're titrating it up along with food, potentially along with anabolics. Once we get to the latter end of prep, we're actually starting to work things down. We're doing less and less training because we want to make sure that the quality is there. Um, but yeah, as I said, once we kind of get to that point of diminishing returns and we see these deteriorations with your sleep quality, appetite, pump, whatever other markers, um, deloading approaches. So you can do like a complete rest, complete deload. You can do like a D volume. Um, where you can do reduced reduced volume or reduced frequency. Um, sometimes what I like to do here is like, even say, put someone in and say, right, go do three full body sessions this week. You wear on a specialization, you wear on five training days per week, you're a high cardio. This week, we're gonna pull that down. Go in and get a pump some days. And also with that, like bring along some feedback of like other movements that you enjoy or maybe stuff that you want to throw in. Because again, just bring it back to that whole point of enjoyment and exercise selection. like. They they marry up very very well together. But when you're when you're giving them that, just a three, three full body days, are you still allowing them to go to failure, or do you have like a set protocol inside of that session that you ask them to follow? Oh yeah, I'll, I'll give them a protocol. Um, I will say like three rep and reserve, which for most people will end up being like four rep and reserve. <laughs> um, okay, so a, a three a three or three rep and reserve, and the actual. Two working sets, okay. Um, and their, their frequency then, would you, let's say, allow them to maybe one day on, one day off, one day on, two days off, or do you just give them free reign with that? What would your protocol be there? Um, yeah, I'll kind of give them free reign. Like, the specificity that you apply is proportional to the level of advancement of the individual in front of you. Like, if Joe gave me very vague... Um, 
like instructions like that, I'd probably go the other way with it and overtrain. You know what I mean? So I think once you're kind of working with that other individual who does really, really enjoy the training, it's a, a mental, psychological, social outlet for them. It's something they enjoy. You kind of need to make sure that they don't overdo it. Um, but yeah, I suppose like most people, if we're talking gen pop, are like, again, if we're in a dieting phase, which is when I think deloads and, and deep volumes are underutilized, um, people probably won't overdo it. Yeah. Because they're, they're tired. Like, you just need to reiterate the point to them. Like, the point of this week is literally just to minimize that fatigue that we've accumulated over the last mesocycle and, and just pull things back so that we're ready to kind of push back on for these last seven, eight weeks. And do you ever factor in like regulated deloads or is it always auto regulated with you? So, once we've run a few productive mesocycles, within a gaining phase you can you can pull that information across so you, you'll construct a a schema based off their responses what you've done so far what's worked well when you haven't so reactively doing it initially and then you'll kind of blueprint in a proactive plan if that makes sense so let's say with certain individual we're trying to bring up whatever body parts we know that we've ran this schema over let's say nine weeks where we ran four weeks of baseline volume we've done three weeks of baseline plus we've done what's left two weeks of baseline plus plus we ran that nine week volume then we say right now we retired we take that deal out we wash off the fatigue and then we can kind of like drag and drop that nine week block and say well the plan is probably going to be around this nine weeks obviously that can change again poor allostasis management and um, if food is titrating up along that time as well with drugs, potentially you can pull that out a little bit more as well. Um, but yeah, just kind of getting reference points. And again, this is like the longer you work with a client, the more reference points you have. So the more you can kind of customize and make it more suitable to them. And see with that, with that, with that, like, like that type of drag and drop approach, let's say we go like we push for nine, we pull for one. In that one pull, is that a D volume or is that a D load? What would you favor in that, in that respect? For people who enjoy their training, I'll say D-volume because they probably don't want to take the time off. But again, that'd be D-volume with like pretty specific cues of how many sets, what proximity to failure. Um, yeah, but I need, actually with more trained individuals as well, they probably have a higher proclivity to generating excessive fatigue. Mm. So with some of them, like if you see that they're completely shot, you're saying, right, you need to take that full week off. Yeah. Um, a complete week away from training a full week off oh yeah yeah sometimes that'll go down too well that's the thing that's the thing it's like for the likes of you or myself or like many of the listeners like the thought of that kind of scares you but Mm. you also want to make sure that like you're making use of your weeks if you're training hard enough you want to train to the point where you need that week off because that's what's going to give you the, the greatest kind of adaptation See, amongst just as you were speaking there, a couple of things I, I was just kind of pinpoint that I want to ask amongst that, like you said, like let's kind of work with that kind of nine to one because we've already referenced it. If let's say on block one, right, we ran that nine to one approach and it was perfect, no issues amongst the nine. In in block two, if we reran that approach, but we were starting to see like some areas of potential needing to deload, like let's say on week four, five, or six, what would you do there? Would you maybe try to maybe hold? Or would you run like kind of like a, a mini D-load or D-volume in between that period? Or what would you do there? 
it's so nuanced because it, it just depends on the individual. Um, I suppose, like, I just had that conversation of, like, what has changed? Like, just reference the last block and say, okay, last time we, we managed to get this much training. Like, what's changed since then? It could be, again, like we talked about, they're getting better at training. They're better at taking stuff to failure. So then we could actually infer that. And then in the subsequent block, we'll just start them on a lower volume. So, like, their previous baseline in their first, like, 10 weeks of coaching with you, has been whatever amount of sets and now like they're, they're reaching a year they're getting really good at training they're getting strong now you're going to start that subsequent training block on like lower volume so I want to I ask as well there so just another question that was pinging into my head there when you're speaking there about clients who are let's say dieting or let's say we're, we're on prep mm-hmm. when we're look, looking at like let's say either the, the deload or the devolumize is there anything else that you will change amongst that week like will you change their cardio that week will you change their food intake that week or is it just strictly from training um if they're ahead of schedule or if they're on track i wouldn't change anything i look i'd rather just kind of keep their food as it is um i know that you like as an individual as well like to kind of emphasize the difference between like training and non-training day foods like there's a there's a pretty decent amount of calorie difference there so like maybe even at some stage if there is a lot of fatigue and like their rest day food is low it could even bump that back up slightly um, but like their weekly average is still going to be pretty similar you know what I mean? so like if someone was training four days a week on 2700 they had three rest days on 2000 their average is going to be around let's say 2300 mm-hmm. so like let's carry that across and then in that deal order we might put them on two three or two two you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, like their weekly averages then would drop if you're putting them on like just their non-training day food. But if they're kind of like you need to keep digging, you might actually push that back up. You might put some cardio in. Um, usually, what you'll see is like potentially, or I might even like move their steps up because it's still increasing their expenditure, but it's very very low fatigue. You know, it's mean? so, like no one's going to like need a deload from doing too many steps. <laughs> so yeah I, I nearly popped that up a little bit um but also like emphasize like right the point here of this week is to refresh yourself so with this like week that you have and maybe a few more steps like chill the fuck out listen to a podcast like go on a scenic walk like you're still coaching a person at the end of the day like it's not a excel sheet that's going to be on stage yeah that, that's what i wanted to say. just ask there was there anything then from a lifestyle perspective that you would like to pull in like you touched on there like more exposure more like maybe like time away from the gym but giving them things to do was there anything else you could touch on that you you operate because I know, I know some, some other people it's like they'll i'm not too sure whether i fully agree with this but like they pull caffeine intake on d loads and they pull like any other like external stressor that might be causing like any type of fatigue is there anything else along those lines that you work with um, I would say like I think habitually you will probably see caffeine intake just drop off because they don't they don't need as much. Um, it's it's rare enough that I'll give specific use with that. Um, but yeah, I, I, to be honest, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I would kind of indicate and say like, right, we need to emphasize this other than just like chill the fuck out, make sure that after this week you're ready to push for the next seven or eight strike like with zero error. Yeah. Um. One thing I want to ask as well, just while we're on this like topic of like almost a deload volume, when you're bringing somebody through like a pretty excessive dieting phase at the back end of that, so let's say we've done like the photo shoot, 
you you've 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 hit them for the photo shoot and then like we have like obviously like week one follow week two follow would that like deload approach would that fit in straight away into that kind of post photo shoot period effective immediately yeah yeah, yeah gotcha um because like that's where they're going to be most compromised so like the whole point of the deload the volume approach is to match up or to somewhat manage their output or their training relative to what they can recover from at the end of a, a photo shoot, especially if you've kind of like dieted all the way through and like you were, let's say, slightly behind on schedule, you couldn't like deload prior. Sometimes I like to make sure they're ready a week early, pull training down, maybe put a little bit of food back in so you have this kind of fresher look. Um, and it keeps like the mindset in a lot better position as opposed to like, okay, I've been on 1100 calories for the last six weeks and now I'm not on prep. Um, so if you kind of work that up before the shoot, that'd be fucking awesome. But otherwise, um, yeah, like they're, the recovery capacity is still going to be shot and that's not going to be ameliorated via a refeed or like moving your calories up by four or five hundred and also hormone signaling uh signaling so like you're you're not going to have proper leptin and ghrelin uh secretion uh until like let's say a full seven to fourteen days of like um around maintenance calories before you kind of get any kind of adaptation from that it's a very delayed process so don't think like okay cool uh i'm not on prep anymore my food has gone up by 800 calories i'm good to go for it like that that should need some time to sell so sometimes i'll even say right let's move your food up 600 calories take at least four or five days off training some people might want to go in and get a pump they want to still enjoy training while they feel lean cool go for it don't overdo it yeah i think that's a it's a, it's a great one to to speak on as well because for a lot of people it's like once they finish like a new goal straight away like i want to be back in it's like performance based i want to start getting things under, under the bar but what we would kind of see from that is just excessive fatigue build up straight away what would be your approach to like titrating that then so let's say we have week one week two it's like bring you back in if you like you said take four days off if you want to try and train what would be like your approach to increasing and what would be your signs to say okay maybe we hold from here or maybe it's a green light to push again um appetite signaling would be the the main one that, like you're managing food focus so they're not just kind of like in this binge restrict uh, sorry binge restrict cycle um even if like their calories work out the same like you're not going to see the same effects in terms of uh, and there's research done on this i'm awful for remembering research names but like they com- literally compared like females in a, in a post-diet period where they're both groups are having 2000 calories. So they don't have maintenance um, intake. One group is doing like two days of 3000 calories. Doers are like just matching them up to get the, the average. So it could be like, actually probably more than that. I think it was two days of three and a half thousand calories, five days of oh, 1600. And then you compare that to groups having the um, 2000 calories daily. You're going to see a lot quicker response in that uh, second group of getting their hormones back in range. So it's not just about like your weekly average intake. It's like your consistency with that and managing stress because, again, I'd probably imagine that like people having the same food every day were able to manage that like, and that their stress was lower as well. Um, so, yeah. That and then for other people coming out of like photo shoot prep, competition prep, and um, again, if you're working with assisted individuals, you're gonna need some time at like a TRT dosage to wash off like that androgen related fatigue because that's built up over a long time. And like, like, yeah, you're, you're gonna need some time 
away from that because that's not going to be minimized like we said just with like a couple of days of really really high food um so spending time with like some really really baseline training some trt or slightly modified uh drug deployment then as you move those weeks across once they're kind of getting back into the enjoyment factor with training um minimizing any joint niggles we're seeing performance start to increment but like i'd say you're better safe than sorry when it comes to volume prescriptions um and to keep them on the lower end because once their once their food is high enough they're consistent enough and they're getting like some level of training like they're not going to lose tissue i know that that's kind of like what everyone's so afraid of but like the minimum effective volume for muscle retention is like eight sets per week for most body parts so that's pretty minimal. You don't really need much more than that. Like if you're training again accurately to, to failure or near enough to failure. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Very interesting, buddy. Thank you very much. I think that's that's more or less everything that I had to wrap up there. Did you want to touch on anything else, dude? Or are you happy to? Um no, I think I think that's it, mate. Um I think we've covered that, gave it pretty good context and like again, the applicability of it towards you as an individual. You don't need to have all this understood you don't need to be able to apply all of this straight out the gate but as you progress through your physique development journey it's going to be a matter of like maybe taking more of these little nuance pieces on board and, and applying them um, and that's really when like the the specificity has more prevalence or precedence and um, yeah um yeah that's it but thank you very much for coming to the podcast today. For everyone listening, dude, where, where can they where can they find you? What's what's your what's your Instagram? What's your handles? Where can they where can they catch you? So Instagram is at Dara underscore Alan, D-A-R-A-G-H. Um and yeah, hit me up there. That's where I'm going to be posting all of my current updates, client updates. I have a good bit of informative content up there. Um hoping to get a website up soon and get some articles started writing them. So hopefully that'll be a that'll be ready to go at some stage in March. Um, and yeah, any questions that people have, like I'm, I know I look pretty aggressive, but I don't bite. So feel free to pop me a DM and uh, have a chat about anything. Awesome, buddy. Thanks very much for coming on today, Dart. I really appreciate it. Great. Appreciate it, bro.